thank you all for coming today. Um, we are now embarking on our final event for the Graphic Novel Symposium. I want to thank Espresso Love for helping to sponsor all of our events and just the Graphic Novel Symposium in its entirety. Today, I'm super excited to welcome Anne Elizabeth Moore. Uh, she is an award-winning journalist, the founding editor, editor of Best American Comics, and author of two previous books, Unmarketable and Cambodian Girl. Uh, she's here to talk about her most recent book, Threadbare, Clothes, Sex, and Trafficking, which you can purchase um, at the front of the library from our bookstore. Uh, she's also currently a fellow in Detroit's Write a House program, which means that she has generously given her time to come and share with us her work. Um, so really excited and want to just hand it over to Elizabeth and Elizabeth Moore. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can you guys hear me okay? Oh, thank you. Um, so I'm Anne. You can just call me Anne if you would like to. Um, I am here to talk about Threadbare. Specifically, I want to talk about how comics journalism works in this particular project, which means actually talking about a lot of the crazy stuff that I've done with various people over the last couple of years um, and why I have done it. I am known as a cultural critic and a journalist and an artist. Um, you will notice that I'm not really known as an activist. This is because my work is about fact-finding and representation and not so much sort of convincing people what to do about those facts. There are people who are much better at that than I am. Um, but a lot of the work that I do does involve finding very difficult and hard to believe facts. So people um, <coughs> can kind of read into that um, intentions, and of course there are intentions. My intentions are to make it clear that there are things that we don't understand about the world. A number of years ago, I started working with a group of uh, people called the Lady Drawers Comics Collective. We, the Lady Drawers, are known as an unofficially affiliated group of women, men, and non-binary gender folk who research, perform, and publish comics and texts about how economics, race, sexuality, and gender impact the comics industry, other media, and our culture at large. What does that mean? It means we basically sit around in a room and we drink a lot of coffee and we make jokes about underpants because the name Lady Drawers is, of course, um, a nickname for underpants, popular in Britain, which uh, was why I was invited to Britain a number of years ago <laughs> to talk on a comics symposium. And, and I gave this long talk about like Gar the garment industry and human trafficking and all these very important things. And then at the, I asked if there were any questions. At the end, one guy in the back raised his hand and said, you know, you haven't addressed underpants. And I was just like, okay, well, we'll get that out of the way right away. Here's some underpants. They're drawn by one of our uh, collaborators, a woman named Esther Pearl Watson, who's best known for the work Unlovable. And uh, really genuinely, the comics collective known as the Lady Drawers is entirely about sitting around and talking about horrible things until they become funny. Um, and so while we're sitting around drawing underpants and making jokes about Lady Drawers, we do talk about large-scale global injustice and we make jokes about it and then we figure out ways of representing it to people. We are a deliberately, incredibly diverse group of people 
this would be a typical lady drawers meeting if, in fact, we had ever gotten in the same room together at the same time. But we are sort of located around the country. There are a couple of people actually all over the world. Um, and from a diverse a range of backgrounds, many um, from low-income communities, uh, Mexican-American immigrants, uh, people from the Middle East, people who are non-binary, sex workers, standard traditional comic book artists, uh, men, and uh, me. Our first project was a postcard campaign. We started getting suspicious that for whatever reason uh, there weren't a lot of women becoming known in the world of comics and so we researched that as a question together. Uh, what's up with ladies in comics? And we came up with a number of fascinating uh, findings around sort of the amount of support that women comics creators receive in the world. It's not very much compared to men. Um, and we created a series of postcards that we then mailed to key figures in the comics industry. So we developed all these facts and the sort of final outcome of this project were these, these postcards that then were sent to critics and creators and, and women working in the industry to generate conversation in the community that would be able to have a deliberate uh, decision-making power over what to do about this. Um, and that really led um, to a really wide-scale clamor for our work. At the time, maybe you guys are more familiar with these concepts now, but at the time, people were not really aware that there was a problem of gender representation in the world of comics. Uh, that was the conversation that we felt like needed to start, so we started it. We started it um, first with the postcard campaign, which was never published officially anywhere. And then we were offered the chance to start doing a monthly strip in the news site Truth Out. And this was a project whereas the postcard campaign was something I was sort of involved in. Again, that was slightly a more of an, an activist intended project. Um, the news uh, journalism, comics journalism project was, was much more my baby. And so um, we started publishing monthly our findings on gender in the world of comics. Um, at the time, there was an organization called Vita Literary, which had just revealed that women have a hard time being published in the literary world. Uh, they were coming up with numbers like um, The New Yorker publishes 73% male artists, and Harper's 79% male artists, and then The New Republic publishes 84% male artists. But what was worse about the New Republic than anyone else was that they had a reason for it. The New Yorker and Harper's were both like, what, that's crazy, we should do something about that. And they didn't really, but at least they weren't like, yes, we absolutely stand by this grave injustice that we commit every day. The New Republic was like, women can't write opinion journalism, which is where we start to have a problem. However, the bottom line is that it's worse in the comics industry for women. Women are given only uh, between 12% and 10%, as low as 8% of the jobs that are available for comics creators at any given moment in North America. Now, 
that is a problem that is reflected in the way that women's representation works sort of everywhere in our culture, in public life, um, in the government, women make up only 17% of the House and Senate, in the military, women are only 15% of the active forces, in business, women are only 15% of the boards of directors at Fortune 500 CEO uh, companies, and only 2%, although I think that's gone down now to 1.7% of the CEOs of those Fortune 500 companies. Women's sort of disengagement um, and or decision to be pushed out is actually um, then also one of the reasons that women aren't necessarily supported in the world of journalism um, and in media making in general. And so what we have is a situation where women aren't actually consulted as sources as frequently as men in the news media that we consume. Um, now, this is weird to turn on the news and be like, what do you think about abortion rights, Mr. Johansson? Oh, really? Well, what do you think about, you know, daycare for children and after school programs, Mr. Pleitonoptilus? And, and, and you can see that something is wrong with that, right? But it's sort of evened out when we start to look at the world of fiction representation, where, where women's representation actually surpasses the representation of male characters. Women in the world of fiction, and this is sort of counting all, uh, you know, averaging all possible fictional characters in all possible realms from TV and movies and comic books, um, women make up 52% of the population. Now, two-thirds of them are not wearing um, a full set of clothing and only one-third of them are given any lines to speak whatsoever. But the truth is that we can see women when we turn on the TV or we can open the pages of the comic book. They just often aren't allowed to speak and they aren't wearing a lot of clothes. And that's weird. So in the world of comics, what happens is that everyone thinks that women are well represented, right? And there's no data to prove that actually they might not be. So what we did in 2012 was we actually asked everyone who was interested in working in comics around the world, everyone who combined text and image in any particular way, what they wanted to do with their lives, how much money they made doing it, whether or not they'd ever been published, what their experiences were like, et cetera. And what we found was that only 54% of the people who were interested in making comics that we could track down, and this was a, a survey that some couple of hundred people filled out, I think. Um, only 54% were male, 7% were non-binary, and the remainder were uh, female, 39%. And so when we look at back at this number, like it's kind of bad that women only get 10% of the jobs in the comics industry, but it's not that bad if women make up only 10% of the industry, right? That they make up 40% of the industry means that there is something gravely unjust going on. So the larger issue, however, then for me becomes economic. Because even if women start out in comics, they tend to drop out really quickly, they get really frustrated, they have all these sort of 
uh, reasons why they can't actually remain long-term working in the comics industry, notoriously known as sort of a boys club or man's world. And that turns out to, I think, be primarily about money. We averaged a bunch of earnings that people received. They reported to us how much they earned every year. And what we found was that annually, men tended to earn $5,131 a year. Women tended to earn $1,538 a year. Trans and non-binary people tended to earn $188 a year. When we put that into that famous statistic, uh, for every dollar a man earns in comics, a woman earns 72 cents. In this one, we have for every dollar a man earns in comics, a woman earns 27 cents. And a trans and non-binary person earns three and a half cents. And that's when we know that something is going on in comics that is uh, bizarre and not sort of similar in any ways to the kinds of misrepresentation that occur in other media. So we'd sort of proven that there was this basic gender bias happening in comics. And we were a little bit wondering where, where we should go with that. Um, I had been at that point studying the garment trade around the world for about six years. And I decided that we should do a comic series that connected the garment trade to human trafficking. And this was a, a, a very good idea, and everyone was sure that there was a connection, including myself. No one knew what the connection was. So the idea that I would set out to do this monthly report based on a thesis that had not in any way be proven was completely terrifying. Um, so I started in the world of fast fashion, which all, we're all familiar with. H&M, Forever 21. Uh, even the gap, we can kind of walk in and we, we have a very strong memory of what it's like to buy clothes in the United States today. And not even just in the United States, but everywhere we would travel within the Western world, and more and more everywhere we might travel anywhere in the world. Um, and fast fashion is a fairly recent phenomenon. It really started in the 70s. It's really picked up. Uh, it's now um, the way that Americans shop. Americans buy around 20 billion pieces of clothing a year, an average of 68 garments and seven pairs of shoes per person. Um, the top three fast fashion brands, Inditex, H&M, and Mongo, have a combined 11,400 stores in over 110 countries worldwide. And it's a very interesting uh, labor issue in the world of fast fashion because there's big, big, big money going through here. Um, the, there's constant turnover in merchandise. There used to be four seasons of fashion every year. Um, one of the things that fast fashion did was it sort of cut that, first expanded to six, and then it expanded to eight, and now there isn't a season whatsoever. You simply go in and there's new stuff on the shelves every day, which is sort of its own marketing campaign, right? It's the way that you're convinced to come back tomorrow because there will be something new there, definitely. What all of this overlooks is the fact that there are human people putting those clothes out on the shelves every day, and that's actually pretty difficult labor if you have to do it every day, eight to 10 hours a day. 
Uh, so when you work in a fast fashion retail outlet, you are asked, um, on penalty of not having a job, to sign a non-disclosure agreement. So the reason that we don't hear how much fast fashion retailers make is because they have signed away their right to speak to journalists about how much money they make. So they're legally kept from being able to explain this. And this is where I want to start you guys thinking about comics journalism, right? Because if I walked in with my little reporter notepad and my pencil and I was like, hi, I'm a reporter and I just need to know how much money you make. And uh, Marissa here would have said, yeah, well, I can't tell you that. You know, have a nice day. Um, instead, I walked in and said, hey, Marissa, I'm a comics creator. And you know, we're doing this project about fast fashion. And, and I kind of need to know how much you make in order to like, put it in the thing. And she was like, can you draw me in this sweater? I didn't wear it today, but I can send you a picture of it. And I was like, of course I'll draw you in that sweater. That's totally, that's a great idea. And she was like, okay, well, I make X numbers of dollars, right? And here is the thing about my working conditions. And once, a couple of weeks ago, it got so hot in here and the air conditioning conked out and all of us fainted on the floor. And they closed the store as if it was no big deal and they don't even give us health insurance, right? All of a sudden, we got access to information that we would not have otherwise had because of the medium that we were working in. Now, with traditional text journalism, I would have had to name her. I would have had to have a photograph of her. I would have had to indicate which store she came from. I note the store she came from. I didn't necessarily note um, the, uh, I noted the location of the store that she came from, but there's another store across the street it could have been as well. And did have a picture of her that's really only recognizable uh, as her to her and to myself, right? You couldn't track her down if you were the H&M HR person that was in charge of finding out whether or not anyone had violated this agreement. So, so comics journalism itself offers a different kind of storytelling than other modes of storytelling. This is um, a piece, what we were doing with Threadbare before it actually became collected in the collection known as Threadbare, was we were monthly putting these comic strips together that sort of traced the production line of the garment industry back to the place where it became uh, entangled in the, human, the world of human trafficking and the sex industry, right? So we'd done the what happens in the stores situation. And um, I was interested in doing a strip about the distribution system, warehousing. Sounds super boring. It looks kind of boring. It turns out that it's fascinating, right? So I sent Melissa Mendes, who turns out to be one of my closest collaborators and one of the smartest illustrators I've ever worked with. Um, I sent her the script, and she sent me this back. And I was like, Melissa, you have read the script. That is the most boring image I've ever seen in my life. Like, we need to find a way to show people how freaking exciting these warehouses are. And she came back with this. Much more dynamic, colored, brilliantly sort of coming at you in this direct way. 
absolutely encompasses all of the things that we needed to explain in this piece about this thing that appears to be boring, but actually is very exciting. And here's the thing about warehousing spaces. They're often sitting on land that is considered a foreign trade zone. And a foreign trade zone is a special piece of land that has been denationalized from the government. It is no longer a part of the United States. And why that is, is to sort of allow the processes of uh, manufacturing and outputting goods to be much speedier, right? And it sounds good. We can sort of eliminate ta uh, tariffs and taxes on certain things if we know that really only um, you know, truck drivers and uh, storage containers are, are going to be taking up that space. Except for that's not actually how things work on the ground, right? People still need to be involved in this. And so what we have in foreign trade zones is a situation where all labor laws have been suspended. There is absolutely no labor law that exists in a foreign trade zone because there is no, they don't exist under a nation, right? And so workers will go in and they'll get in the forklift and they'll drive the stuff and the forklift will have a problem and it will fall over and it will break and the employer will say, oh, that's so too bad for you. And also you just lost your job because you can't walk anymore. And this happens fairly regularly. And for women, again, which is uh, one of the sort of constant concerns that we have when we're looking at comics, journal, uh, comics uh, issues with the lady drawers, what happens with women is that all of the surveillance that c that's kept up in order to ensure that none of the employees are stealing any of the merchandise becomes a, a tool of, of surveillance and stalking. And women are regularly sexually assaulted and raped in many of these facilities. And so they are much more dangerous for women. The idea being, well, who wants to work in a warehouse in theory? The problem is women like having jobs just as much as men do. You know, it's not, it's not a gendered issue whether or not you want to eat dinner or feed your family. So women working in warehouses are experiencing sexual assault and harassment on a regular basis as a standard operating aspect of keeping their jobs. And of course, these are where the majority of our garments come through. All of fast fashion goes through um, warehouses within the United States. Um, and I skipped a couple of the images here. You'll have to go through and actually read the book in order to sort of collate them properly. Um, but the idea was, right, we trace back from, um, and the book includes a talk with a fashion model that I'm uh, friends with named Sarah Meyer, who's a non-white person of color. She's a Filipino fashion model and um, supermodel that left the industry. And what she tells me in the book is that, you know, she was sort of experiencing the same level of harassment and frustration that women experience regularly in the garment industry and then also in the warehouses, right? And then what we have when we read that is an awareness that actually the garment industry, this is kind of just how it treats people, right? Women being mistreated is a natural aspect of how they're going to do business. And that's a problem, right? So at this point, 
in the narrative of the Truth Out monthly strips that we were doing, we'd sort of gotten to that point and um, I was um, in Cambodia at the time uh, and I just filed my final, we'd filed the final comic from the garment industries themselves. We wanted to um, show a family sort of struggling to make a living on the, at the time, garment workers in Cambodia were earning $117 a month. Living wage is much higher, um, is almost three times that. And at the time where I was in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, uh, the garment workers were like, we, we're not having this anymore. <laughs> like we actually, we're making ourselves sick. The only food we can buy is uh, already moldy, it's gone bad, the meat is horrible, otherwise we don't have enough energy to get through the day, uh, and we just can't take it anymore. And they started a strike. They started the largest strike that Cambodia has ever seen. And they took to the streets and they demanded uh, a significant raise. And after about a week, the prime minister a man named Hun Sen, who has been in power in Cambodia for, um, he's the longest seated prime minister in any country in the world. Um, he was also with the government that's before the current form of government in the 70s, or 80s rather. And then <coughs> he was also with the government that was before that in Cambodia, which is known as the Khmer Rouge. So this is a man who has been in power through every form of government, since he was a member of the party that killed a quarter of its population in 1975, between 1975 and 1979. Um, and so he noted these protests and basically at some point said, well, uh, garment workers, I hear your plight and I'm not going to do anything about it, but I, I do hear you. And the garment workers were like, hey, we've been hearing that for like 10 years and we are not having that anymore. So we would like you to quit. And the protest changed from being about a, earning a living wage in the garment industry to ousting the prime minister. The prime minister didn't like that. After a couple of days, he actually armed the military police, sent them out into the streets, and had them kill, uh, shoot into a crowd. He killed around 50 uh, strikers. He injured another couple of hundred. There are several bodies still missing. It's not clear uh, why. Um, and this, of course, is terrifying for a population that survived the genocide of a quarter of its own population within their lifetime. And the prime minister was like, well, you know, you were asking for, you were asking for your rights. Guess who's in charge of that? You know, like, that's not gonna happen. And so he put the government on lockdown. He put the entire country on lockdown. We were not allowed, I was teaching at the time, and we were not allowed to gather in groups of more than 10 people in any room in the country. My class had 12 people in it, so effectively I couldn't meet with my students. So class was canceled, and I was bored. And I was also at a point in my research, in my project for Truth Out, where I needed to figure out 
whether or not there was a connection between the garment trade and human trafficking. So the pressure is on, and also a bunch of my friends have just been killed, right? I decide to go out and just visit one of the anti-trafficking organizations in Cambodia. Just like get the lay of the land, see what happens in these spaces, see how people talk about their clients, et cetera, see whether or not they're doing any good. Because of course in Cambodia, one of the things about garment workers that is extremely important to keep in mind is that the garment industry is the only job available to women. What that means is that if they leave that job because they can't afford to make ends meet or they are experiencing sexual harassment for their, their boss at that job or the job, the factory shuts down or they have some kind of altercation or they're fired for fainting on the job, which happens a lot, they're out of a job. They're out of jobs. They're out of options. And in those situations, everywhere in the world where that happens, the sex trade is thriving because the sex trade becomes the only other employment option for women. And to be perfectly honest, it's not that bad of a job. Women seem to enjoy themselves. They are able to control their finances, feed their families, set their own hours. It's a much more manageable situation for many, many, many people than the garment industry. And in Cambodia, the sex industry um, is fairly large and fairly well organized. So when I went to the anti-human trafficking organization, one of the things that I was interested in looking at was whether or not they saw a difference between at-will sex workers and people who had been trafficked. And the differences are difficult to see if you are not the actual person who supposedly needs services. But the bottom line is that trafficking victims do not have a choice about what sorts of sexual services they perform for other people. At-will sex workers absolutely have a choice. They're in the job because it is the jo best job available to them. The mark of a very bad anti-human trafficking organization is one that does not distinguish between those two. Visiting this, which was one of the earliest anti-trafficking organizations in Cambodia. It started in 2007, right after the time that Somali Mom had sort of made human trafficking an international issue, human trafficking in Cambodia in particular. And of course, I went and I, and I was like, I just want to see, like, I've been working around women's rights for a really long time. Like, let me know what's up. And the first thing that I was told by the woman who gave me this tour, the, their press agent, actually, was that I wasn't allowed to take any photographs and I was not allowed to ask the women any questions. As a reporter, that's a big alarm bell right there. That means I'm not allowed to verify any of the stories that I'm being told by the organization. The fact that I couldn't take pictures, totally fine with me. Like, I already have a system where that doesn't matter, you know? But not being able to verify any of the supposed facts that were being offered to me is terribly concerning. And what I discovered was that this particular organization um, 
is not terribly concerned with the difference between at-will sex workers and human trafficking victims, which tends to be a problem when human trafficking victims are often sweep, swept up in mass arrests around and in brothels in particular and forced into these programs. And that what this program does in particular, you can kind of see the, um, the little piles of elephants here and then the women working down here, is it trains them for re-entry into more respectable employment. And where is the more respectable employment? Well, it's in the garment trade. And this organization paid women as a way of sort of attempting to build trust and build an economic infrastructure in their lives, about a quarter of what they would make in the actual garment trade, training them to then return to the garment trade, which most of them had left in the first place because they couldn't afford to live on the salaries that they were being paid in it originally. When we look at this in the big picture, what we can see is that that's actually not unusual. The anti-human trafficking NGOs around the world are generally funded, um, generally work with um, supposed human trafficking victims, often women who are working at will in the sex trade, um, forcibly trains them, arrests them, forcibly trains them to take jobs, uh, to for jobs in the garment industry, and then places them back in the garment industry, right? Which would be weird on its own. It's weird to treat people like that. It's even weirder when we realize that those same anti-human trafficking organizations are actually being funded by the garment trade. And what's happening then is that the garment industry is funding a situation where women who leave the garment industry are being arrested, retrained, and replaced back into the garment industry to earn wages that they weren't able to live on in the first place. And that's not specific to Cambodia. That's not specific to Vietnam. That's not specific to even emerging countries, right? The same thing happens here if we look at the connection between women who work in Forever 21, and decide that they can't actually do that job anymore because it doesn't earn them enough money and it, the hours aren't flexible and their boss is sexually harassing them, and they go into the sex trade. The same exact situation happens here. And we can actually start to trace exactly where those organizations are getting their money, who the biggest players are, who is involved, how much money they're funding, into this very tightly knit closed circle and how that all works together to actually keep, first of all, the wage gap, the global gender wage gap in place around the world, but also women in poverty around the world. Now the book ends with this amazing drawing by Leela Corman, who is a fantastic, fantastic artist. And she was sort of inspired by all this like agitprop filmmaking in the late 30s stuff that was happening. And what we need to start understanding is that 
Women at every stage of the garment industry, this is our retail employer, this is our warehouse worker, this is our um, garment manufacturing uh, factory employee, this is our sex worker, and this is our uh, trans sex worker. These people are all part of the same, are all sort of being um, kept in a system of oppression by the same people, right? And it is, those people are identifiable. And that's a new connection that no one had sort of known about before. The Truth Out series hit. And, and one of the things about it that was sort of amazing was that, you know, I'm releasing all this information in comics. And um, with text-based journalism, it's much easier because you can quote in a very direct way. You write the same words that the person wrote originally. You put quotation marks around it, and then you say their name. And what was happening was that the Washington Post was picking up my comics journalism, but they had no idea how to cite it. And, so the, and they didn't even know like, the proper terminology of like calling it comics or referring to it as whatever, or calling me a comics journalist. Um, so they were like, in a picture drawn by someone posted on this website, uh, the, the, the woman is going into a bar and blah, 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 blah. And they were completely baffled by how they had gained the information that they had just gained because they were looking at comics. Um, the book, for the book, we decided to actually do something large scale to sort of unite the images. We'd worked in total with about five or six different artists. Um, and there's even a section I didn't show you any images from at all. So one of the things that I wanted to do was actually uh, wipe out all of the blacks and replace them with a very dark blue to just subtly sort of shift the base from which you would operate as a viewer. So no more blacks. We're all starting from the same sort of blue grounding point. And then we had shifting color signatures so that the book starts with this like garish orange because we're looking at the fast fashion industry and models. And then we move into this very um, old-fashioned looking look at the history of the garment trade in a place like Austria and how when it was demolished, it sort of directly contributed to the rise of the Third Reich. Um, and that those decisions are only possible when you have a group of randos like sitting together in a room that are just like, oh my god, this is so horrible, the oppression of women, the global gender wage gap, it's so awful, but like, here's a funny cat joke, right? So we, um, this is our sort of, this is as close as we get to a logo. Um, after the Truth Out series, we did continue to do monthly comics journalism strips for Truth Out. Um, the next one that we did connected food, racial justice, and policy issues. And it uh, was drawn by Sheikha Lugtu. Uh, this is something from the Auburn Gresham neighborhood, which was actually the last neighborhood I lived in in Chicago. And this is Sheikha herself. Um, we were invited to do a museum installation in, in the spring in Davenport, Iowa. And we were basically just given this room and this idea that we could um, sort of talk about whatever we wanted to. 
And what we wanted to talk about was like, we want the dirt on Davenport, Iowa. Like, that's a crazy place. And so we started looking at the history of gay marriage, which really did start in Davenport, Iowa. And the recent decision by the city council to start demolishing mm -hmm. historical sites important to the Underground Railroad. And why those things were happening at the same time, right? What does it mean when our notion of civil rights means the most recent thing that's capturing people's attention as opposed to honoring the things that had come before it as well. And so we um, were prepared to install it uh, in the school, which had actually paid for us to come. And about two days before we showed up, the school said, oh, we can't let you install that work here. We're a Catholic university. Um, and so we moved into this museum and we did it in this museum and then we were able to have a, a much larger dialogue around what it means when we limit speech, right? What, it mean, what censorship really is about, especially around very deliberately fact-based uh, descriptions of the city that people were living in that they would remember anyway, right? Uh, this is the can't really see it, but this is the room that we were working in. Uh, and this is Melissa Mendes herself. Well, there was a lot of text in this that we put on the wall. It's really hard to paint text on walls just for your information. The most recent thing that we did, I forgot to include images of it in here. Uh, a couple years ago, I was invited to start working with a group of women in Finland. And we started conceiving of an international survey based on the one that I had been doing with the Lady Jars a couple of times now. An international survey that really looked at whether or not these questions of gender justice in comics were limited to the United States, since the United States has a particularly strange way of dealing with media and with women, um, or whether or not this was sort of endemic to comics itself in a, on a larger scale. And so um, this is the sort of logo of Femme Comics Finland. And this was the finished version of our survey. And it was a 10-page survey and we asked, um, we translated it into German, originally we translated it into German, Finnish, Swedish, uh, nope, German, Finnish, Italian, Latvian, and Spanish. Uh, we have translations coming in Swedish, hopefully also in Russian and French. Um, and the idea was that we would get the same basic information in a variety of languages, solicit feedback, and then translate all the responses back into one common language, which for our purposes was English because that's the language I'm most comfortable speaking. And, run, and frankly, doing math in. So uh, this was the finished version. We did recently get this back in Detroit. We spent a week um, in my new home in Detroit, Michigan, two weeks actually, running these numbers, collecting, collating all of the data we gathered from crea comics creators around the world, how much money they made, whether or not they'd ever experienced censorship, whether or not they'd ever experienced sexual harassment, et cetera, uh, where they were publishing, who they liked reading. And we collated all of this. Um, and then we went and spent two weeks in Finland at a residency called Sauren Kartano. Um, the 
Sari Residency, which is a former manor um, in the west of Finland. And we spent two weeks turning these into comics. And sadly, the comics are the part that I forgot to include in here for you. But um, they are available on the Pan American website. We pulled a suite of three comics around censorship issues in the, around the world and um, worked those through into comics first. Those are the first ones that have been published. So I will end there, but I am totally happy to take any questions that you have or address anything you guys are interested in seeing. Um, and thank you for having me. Are there any questions? I have a question. Um, instead of doing it as a comic, why didn't you just basically do it as like a novel, like a basic novel? Threadbare in particular? Yeah. Well, if I were going to write it as a novel, I couldn't base it in fact. So it was never going to be a novel because I'm a journalist, for one. And for two, the picture of the global garment trade is so messy and confusing that even journalism about it doesn't make sense to people, right? So to me, the only way that we can actually picture it is to picture it, right? I mean, we have, yeah, but it's much more effective when you can see it. And frankly, much more interesting, right? When the group of us were sort of thinking through this idea, I mean, pretty much every artist that, that was involved in this was like, that sounds terrifying. I will never be able to figure out how to do it, but I have to be involved in this, right? The challenge of depicting it's, and it's not even just limited to one industry. It's the garment industry, but it's also the sex industry and hu the human trafficking industry. These three interconnected industries that are so big, they're unimaginable. But you have to draw it in a square, right? And every single one of our artists was like, that's impossible. I'm totally in. Yeah. I can see where the graphic art makes people more engaged. Uh, and. Uh, you have more people reading it too. And you know, they'll be able to conceptually understand it by seeing you know, visuals too. But my question was this though. Um, are we talking to every clothing retailer? For the most uh, part in the United States, the like, part, like yeah. at the mall? Yeah. So I can't really go to any particular place in the mall where they're gonna be treating workers better, because yeah. I'd like to. Yeah, and that's, that was the interesting thing about doing this as a book with Microcosm. Microcosm was like, um, we love everything about this book, but you have to add a page where you tell people what to do. And it was like, what we have to do is dismantle these three industries that are interconnected and destroying women's lives around the world. Like, there's no shortcut to that, right? We have to like find a new system and put that in place. But there are things that we can do that allow us to start thinking about a more just s system and that make women's lives for better immediately, right? Anti-poverty measures, first of all. Um, 
supporting people in office who actually know or care about women's rights and human trafficking, as we've talked about it here today, and starting to look at um, anti-poverty measures. Did I say that one already? So um, then starting to look at anti-human trafficking measures that aren't about arresting women, but that fold anti-poverty measures into them, sort of where they are happening, right? So it's about people who have the dialogue that reflects the way that we understand this and supporting them. Now, do I shop at H&M? I shop at H&M. Why? Because I know the women who make those clothes. And that's a decision that I make that's totally comfortable for me. I am also aware that if H&M shut down tomorrow, Cambodia would be destroyed. Many of my friends would be out of work. It would be absolutely devastating. Boycotts are probably not the answer here because getting a clothing manufacturer to change its practices is not going to address any of the issues that we're talking about. And so finding new ways of eliminating waste, we didn't even talk about the ecological effect of this stuff, and, and developing solutions that actually honor the employees, these are sort of outside of the bounds of the system that we have in place. And that's, that's the reality of it. Really installing a new set of policies that make the garment industry worldwide make much more sense would be a good, short, quick first step. We could actually, this next election season in November, put a bunch of people in office who are willing to rewrite textile policy around the world. And that would actually make it easier for people who do have innovative solutions around garment manufacturing to get their wares available worldwide. So you got to be looking at who you're voting for and, and try to figure out, try to even put that on the table. To my knowledge, it's not on the table. You might have to be the one that's at the city hall meeting that's like, hey, well, let's talk about the garment industry. And they're going to be like, get out of here. But just keep saying it until they pay attention, because this is uh, becoming impossible for us all to live under. Can you talk a little bit about your research process? So you have this idea, you recognize this problem, and then how do you start like uncovering that? Yeah, um, it is, uh, my research process in this case was very unusual because I was entirely driven by this presumption that there was something to be discovered. I think that that's probably um, the way that a lot of investigative reporters work, really, is they, they trust their gut. Um, but this was flying pretty far off the handle um, at times. Because um, I was in, I was, I was reporting from like six countries around the world on the presumption that this would all make sense eventually. Um, so I wouldn't recommend doing that. I would recommend uh, actually, <laughs> Working on a smaller scale until you can kind of connect the dots. Once you have a sense of how the dots can be connected, then you can start getting on the plane. But I definitely am a person who is only comfortable reporting on something once I have seen it with my own eyes. So I did a lot of like um, going to the anti-human trafficking organization, seeing it for myself, 
reporting it out there, whereas I think most people would tend to um, read other reports and sort of work from there. Does that answer your question? Yeah. yeah. During your research, did you happen to interview the heads of the garment industry and see what they had to say? Um, so, as in the CEOs? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the CEOs don't address uh, wage issues, like as a rule. So, the CEOs were not going to be available to me. Um, However, in a project that I didn't show here, uh, I, d I did a project that called attention to some issues that were happening in H&Ms in Cambodia. There was a series of mass faintings. Women were uh, fainting in numbers between 12 and 3,000 on a regular basis in the same factory, um, just falling to the ground. And they were, it turns out, eventually just unable to keep up with the demands of production of the fast fashion industry. And I um, did a performance project where we walked into H&M's and we just fainted. I mean, not really fainted, but pretended to faint. And I did this for a little while, and an activist organization in the UK got involved, and then another one in Sweden got involved. And basically, for a little while, everyone was walking into H&Ms around the world and fainting. Um, and one of the major sort of VPs at H&M um, sent word that they were willing to negotiate through one of these activist organizations. And through that, what we sort of discovered was that um, they're manipulable. They're open to suggestion. But it does have to be made clear to them that something tangible can be done. And when we're talking about systems that are about destroying what they do, it's not terribly tangible. So um, some of the individual uh, companies are sort of catching on board and getting in touch about like, oh, the human trafficking organizations that we work with tend to be really bad human trafficking organizations. We can actually find better anti-human trafficking organizations. And there are some that are better. There are some that distinguish between at-will sex workers and human trafficking victims. There are some that actually do anti-poverty work, generally speaking. And so even that slight shift to an organization that more directly supports women in need can be really great. Um, but that's how most of the communication runs, is that like, we sort of hear through grapevines, or I get an email from someone that used to work at a company that they've been reading the work or whatever. But all, I've done all the research. The, the lines are pretty standard. Um, I have like two questions. First off, um, emotionally, how do you handle it is the is the drawing and the writing your catharsis you know for all of this and um, you know what what was the you know what did you do before you started doing this you know what what led you here from somewhere else mm -hmm. um, so I don't draw these images which is the only reason that they get done if I had to also <laughs> draw them like whatever I have a you know art degree, I could probably manage it. 
um, physically, uh, but emotionally I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't both write the facts and then show it to people. Um, and I had a hard enough time actually explaining to the artists how these things need to be depicted. Um, so I don't deal with it emotionally very well, to be honest with you. Um, but that is a very good question. I think a lot of investigative reporters don't get asked that question. And all of us kind of want to talk about the fact that like we go home at night and we're still living with this. And we've maybe talked to people whose stories don't even make the cut, who end up being like the not perfect, you know, like the, the garment worker who um, was mean. That like I just didn't want to put her in the book. She's still starving, you know? That's a horrible situation, but, but that's not even a story that I got to share. So, um, so yeah, so I don't deal with it very well. I don't know, I'm gonna give it some time, maybe find a better way in the future. Uh, then what, how did I come to this? So I studied art um, and then have always written. Uh, in 2004, I, was convinced to leave my job in the comics industry on the West Coast and come back to Chicago to run a news organization. And I um, immediately started trying to figure out ways of combining those things. When I left the, the news organization, I left to do another comics-related job and still continued to like try to, to fit these things together. There are not a lot of comics journalists in the country, uh, in this country in particular. There are many more in, in France, for example. Um, because it's, it's difficult, it's expensive, it's <laughs> people don't understand it. They don't know what it looks like. They don't know, know why we would ever want to do that. But um, I have found it to be so effective that it ends up being uh, something I'm willing to put a lot of energy into. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I used to run a magazine called Punk Planet. Punk Planet? Mm -hmm. It's a print publication. Any final questions? Thank you all very much. It is much appreciated.